Good morning. <clears throat> Proper use of freedom is the topic for these two sessions, these final two sessions that we have together. How is freedom abused today? Is silence permission or is it a prohibition? How large would the Bible be have to be in order for everything forbidden to be specified? Bring out spiritual principles and commandments in the new covenant that should always guide the responsible exercise of our freedom in Christ in the final adult session on Friday. Discuss the magnificent display of God's power when he raised up Jesus from the dead. Talk about all of the comfort and blessings this conquest of death brings us today. That's the part you told me to cut out. Well, it's good because I'm not going to cover all this anyway. I'm just going to say, well, we're going to cover some of this. All right. <laughs> First Corinthians chapter 6. Let's start there. Tom did try to get me that message, but I, I, uh, I guess I didn't catch it all like I thought I did. Our topic is proper use of freedom. <clears throat> and we're going to look at uh, the topic of glorifying God with your body here as we begin in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. And we will be looking at verses 12 to the end of the chapter, 12 through 20, which I'll go ahead and read to start us off. All things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be dominated by anything. Food is meant for the stomach, and the stomach for food, and God will destroy both one and the other. The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. And God raised, God raised the Lord and will also raise us up by his power. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For as it is written, the two will become one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body. But the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price, so glorify God in your body. And my apologies for the, uh, the uh, introduction there being a little off kilter, but I, I believe my scripture reference list is intact for uh, my assignment. And what I was given was to consider this chapter, 1 Corinthians 6, beginning at verse 12, and also 1 Corinthians 9, beginning at verse 23. We will start off looking at those two in 1 Corinthians. And then we will consider as well Colossians chapter 3, especially with the focus on verse 17. I had in mind that we would do some more walking in Galatians 5, but I think we've, we've tread pretty well in that area, so we will skip over that. And for this, this first hour, then, we will conclude with a look at 1 Peter chapter 2. And then in the second hour, if you haven't felt like your toes have been stepped on enough, then we'll really crunch them in that second hour. 
glorifying God with your body. In verses 12 through 14 of 1 Corinthians 6, the Apostle Paul tells us that our bodies belong to the Lord. Our bodies are for the Lord. And he begins by telling us that there are many things that we can do. There are many things that are allowed for us to do. There are things that are lawful, but they may not be helpful. And they certainly should not be things that overpower us. The stomach needs food, but that need is only temporary. Now, I enjoy food, and I enjoy eating. And this, this passage tells me that not only is food a temporary substance, but the very, the very organ in my body and all the organs in my body that are responsible for processing that food, God is going to destroy, he says. He doesn't intend for those things to last. But he does intend for us to use these temples that he has given us properly as we serve him here on this earth. The body is not for sexual immorality. The body is for the Lord. The latter part of verse 13 and looking at verse 14. So our bodies, an example that he uses in regard to sexual immorality, and of course uh, with the, the Gentile society, that was around the Christians, the Gentile society, which many of the Corinthians had, had come out of, that paganism, the things that he begins to describe are, are commonplace. And certainly the culture around us today, and as we've had mentioned in Sam's thoughts as we began this morning, the things that were the images and the uh, ideas that we are bombarded with on a daily basis. It's not quite as bad yet as it was in Roman times but we're certainly headed in that direction. Our bodies are to be members of Christ, not a harlot, he says, or a prostitute, in verses 15 through 18. Shall we take the members of Christ and make them one with a harlot, he says? No, we are to be one with the Spirit in the Lord, verse 17. Therefore, he says, flee immorality, which is a sin against your own bodies. He identifies our bodies... These physical houses, these tents that we are camping in, as being the temple of the Holy Spirit, verses 19 through 20. The body is a temple of the Holy Spirit, who is from God and who dwells within these temples, these tents. We are not our own. We are bought with a price, a very dear price, the blood of Jesus that he refers to in verses 19 and 20. Therefore... Glorify God in your body, he says in the latter part of verse 20. <clears throat> so though something may be lawful, what two criteria does Paul mention which should govern our use of it? He tells us to ask ourselves, is it helpful? Or as some of your translations say, expedient. Does it overpower us? We need to be honest with these questions. We need to look very, very seriously, very carefully at the things that we allow our bodies to do, the activities we allow them to be engaged in. According to verse 15, to whom does our body belong? It belongs to Christ. What is the body of one who is a Christian? A temple. 
of the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit who dwells in our bodies. What then should we do with our bodies? And why? In verse 20, we should glorify God. We were bought with a price, a very, very dear price. And that's right about where some of the thoughts were when I was reading the paragraph in the assignment where Tom <clears throat> told me I was, I, I, I missed his other, that part of his memo, I guess. Uh, I thought I got all that. I'm sorry about that. He did try to uh, <clears throat> cue me about that prior to the camp out, but I, I didn't correct that paragraph. But here we are. I mean, this, <clears throat> this is central to our understanding of, of what we're about, why we are here, what we are to be doing with our bodies, how we are to be spending our time, the proper use of our freedom. We were bought with a price, the blood price, the life of Jesus. I will pause now if there's any thoughts or, or ideas from this section of 1 Corinthians 16, 12 through 20 uh, here that we have looked at. So if anyone would like to uh, make comment, just raise your hand and they'll get a, a microphone over to you. <clears throat> I, I think you're you're getting there next, Steve. But just to to kind of keep them together, the two things you mentioned in verse 12 of chapter six uh, go along with the the one. Uh, there's another one mentioned in verse 23 of chapter 10, and I like to keep those three together. That when trying to decide what to do, I should ask: Is this going to be expedient or helpful? Mm -hmm. Is this going to uh, is is this going to bring me under its power? And uh, is this something that will edify? Yes, thank you, Tom. You know, someone, Tom, someone said you should just keep that microphone at your at your table over there. That would be fine by me. Uh, yes, and thank you for bringing that up. Tom mentions First uh, Corinthians ten, starting about verse twenty-three there, and uh, later we plan to. Uh, I would like to look a little bit at Romans uh, 14 and 15 if we have opportunity as we go along as well. And this ties right in with that. Let me read that section, starting at 23. All things are lawful, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful, but not all things build up. There's the idea of edification added in with the encouragement. Let no one seek his own good, but the good of his neighbor. Eat whatever is sold in the meat market without raising any question on the ground of conscience, for the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. If one of the unbelievers invites you to dinner and you are disposed to go, eat whatever is set before you without raising any question on the ground of conscience. But if someone says to you, this has been offered in sacrifice, then do not eat it for the sake of the one who informed you and for the sake of conscience. I do not mean your conscience, but his for why should my liberty be determined by someone else's conscience if I partake with thanks thankfulness? Why am I denounced because of that for which I give thanks? So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Give offense, give no offense to Jews or to Greeks or to the church of God, just as I try to please everyone in everything I do, not seeking my own advantage, but that of many, that they may be saved. And where he ends there is right where we pick up in, in uh, chapter 9 as well, pretty much on the thought there. But those are very good thoughts to keep in mind as far as 
exercising our, our liberty, considering our brethren, and considering their edification. Any other thoughts? All right, let's look then at uh, 1 Corinthians 9. <clears throat> and here we will begin with uh, verse 19. Verse 19 and down to the end of the chapter here. 1 Corinthians 9, beginning at verse 19. For though I am free from all... Oh, I'm sorry, I missed it. I'm sorry, 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 go ahead. I was going to let you go, I'm sorry. No, no, I... Um, I was just going to say that ver the First Corinthians 16 that you were referring to is a very good verse for us to keep in mind as Americans because, you know, we, we have a big emphasis on freedom in this country. Yes. And as Christians, that should not be our focus. Our focus should be on our brother, our sister, and how we can help them to get to heaven. And we, we want to make sure we don't put our freedom or value our freedom above that. Yes, thank you. And it is good for us to observe that when we Christians get together to talk about freedoms, we end up stressing the restrictions and the limitations that are upon us. Now, uh, we look at these as positive things because these are freeing if looked at from a spiritual standpoint. The world looks at it differently. They don't understand. But yes, that's very good. Very good point. All right, I don't want to miss any other comments. If you had one. All right. First uh, Corinthians 9, then, starting there at verse 19. For though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all, that I might win more of them. To the Jews, I became a Jew in order to win Jews. To those under the law, I became as one under the law, though not being myself under the law that I might win those under the law. To those outside the law, I became as one outside the law, not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ, that I might, be, might win those outside the law. To the weak, I became weak, that I might win the weak. <clears throat> I have become all things to all people, that by all means I might save some. I do it all for the sake of the gospel, that I may share with them in its blessings." Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. So I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air, but I discipline my body and keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified." And I think we, we should have an understanding of when he's saying uh, living outside of the law or living as under the law. He's making a reference to the law of Moses and his uh, operating in expediency toward his Jewish brethren who still have a conscience toward the things of that law. So he, he's talking still here about his example his example of servitude towards others in verses 19 through 23. Though he is free from all men, he makes himself a servant to all men. To the Jews and those who are under the law, verse 20. To those who are not under that law, verse 21. To the weak, verse 22. 
He says, He became all things to all men, desiring to save them and share the gospel with them. No, he, he makes it clear, by no means does he ever compromise God's law, because it is God whom he serves, and his God whom he serves dictates to him that he serve his brethren, and that is what he is doing. And he gives another reason to exercise restraint because of the, the uh, possibility of apostasy. Now this is Paul, the, the inspired apostle here, talking. He uses some athletic events to make his analogy here. He speaks of running a race. He speaks of fighting in a, a boxing match. He says, not all who run in a race win a prize, but you run like you're going to win. You want to win that prize. You want to receive that, that crown that they would award the, the Greek uh, athletes in the Olympics, that, that laurel wreath, this Stephanus crown that they would put upon them. You be that runner. You be that winner. Those who compete for perishable crowns, he says, have to exercise self-control. And like he says in another place to Timothy, when he speaks of bodily exercise, he says it has some value. So we see what great value people place upon such an athletic event. And he says, but that's perishable. That's only temporary. But they have to really discipline themselves to get that accomplished. So how much more should we seek to discipline ourselves because we're after that imperishable crown. So Paul runs his race. Paul fights his good fight with determined discipline, with control over his own body. For he knows that even he himself is in danger of becoming disqualified. When we start t stepping on toes, we're going to step on all of our toes. Because there are, there are methods of evangelism that we may be traditionally uh, fond of using or, or seem to prefer using. And one of those methods of, of evangelism has been focused on a, a, a brother standing up before a group and speaking. Now, when we talk about these things, by no means are we going to suggest that we throw things away that have some value but we want to look at other things that maybe have more value and give even more return because what I'm doing right now is just a small part of the big picture. And even more serious than that, unfortunately, what I'm doing right now can be accomplished by a hypocrite. And that's the sad truth of it. So he, Paul says, I run in a way so that when I proclaim, I will not myself be disqualified. The, I, the one preaching, will not be disqualified. Let's review. Looking at verses 19 and 20, uh, 19 and uh, 22 especially. Why was Paul willing to make himself a servant to all men? So he could save some of them. What two athletic events did Paul compare the Christian life with? Running a race and boxing, fighting. And that's in uh, 24 through 26. Look at, look at verse 27. 
Why was Paul so concerned about exercising self-control? Lest he become a castaway, he was very well aware of the real possibility of his being disqualified. He himself, after having preached to others. Any thoughts on that section of 1 Corinthians 9? Now just shoot your hand up and let them know they'll get those microphones out to you. And I'll try not to overlook you myself. I couldn't overlook this one. I was always uh, in, encouraged by the incentive when you're a runner, the incentive is finishing. And so that helps you run the race. You're willing to train, you're willing to eat the right things. You can eat things that are good, mm-hmm. but when you're in training, you're way more selective because you've got the incentive. Yes. Anyone who's gotten sick because of eating the wrong things has learned that lesson the hard way when they're in a race. I was thinking about uh, Paul confronting Peter um, when he had gone into the partiality treatment. Um, We need to be uh, seriously honest with ourselves, and sometimes that requires asking somebody else to tell us. Yes. Any others? We got one over here, I think. We got one over there and one over here. Um, sound like I made an extra noise there. Um, the uh, thought you mentioned when we were talking about um, Paul. Um, what do we being? how he needed to be for each individual mm-hmm. and uh, the concept of of uh, what that means as far as making those concessions versus um, stepping over the line of what God wants us to do um, is I think is a something we struggle with sometimes when we're dealing even within our own congregations on on issues that that there's disagreement on, mm-hmm. do you have any further thoughts, or anybody have any further thoughts on that particular <clears throat> concept or topics? Well, I would welcome discussion on that. Uh, I do plan to look at uh, Romans 14 or 15 a little bit also related to that, because these obviously do walk into those areas as well. What we've already read, so yeah. Well, the kind of evangelism that he's talking about here, Steve, is evangelism we all need to be doing, yes. not just those who carry the, the evangelistic letter. Mm-hmm. Um, it might be changing a tire or cutting down a tree or cutting firewood for somebody. It might mm-hmm. be anything. Yes. Uh, no one will ever know the impact it had on my dad before I was born, mm-hmm. uh, Wilford Landis helping him unload a load of oats one hot day in the summer. Yep. It, it, no one will ever know but my dad the kind of impact that that one act had on him to see that that skinny little guy with dress pants and a white shirt would jump up in that load of oats and help him shovel them off that hot day. Right. 
Right, exactly, amen. And it should be a, a, a very real and, and natural thing. And that's why, uh, unfortunately, some of the methods that we traditionally rely upon, they, that's what they are. They're a method that maybe we can hide behind. But we're talking about, you know, no matter what uh, color that shirt was when he started, I'm sure it wasn't quite the same when he finished. And it's you got to you got to get into the trenches. Yeah, Bill. <clears throat> the classic example given here of the buffeting the body and and so forth and the running and the boxing. These are all so much important. But if we aren't running to win our own personal race, yes, we've lost the whole battle. Mm-hmm. Right. All right. Let's look uh, briefly at Colossians chapter 3. Colossians chapter 3, 10 through 17. <clears throat> and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so you must also forgive. And above all, above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus giving thanks to God the Father through him. <clears throat> Put on the new man. Put on the new man, in which you are renewed in the image of our creator. That's a good image. That's the image we want to be conformed to. That's the image we want to be perceived in by our creator. This image means that there is not uh, the, the distinctions that we might ordinarily see and be concerned with or what the world seems to be preoccupied with, things like ethnic distinctions. Circumcision or uncircumcision is not <clears throat> excuse me, strictly a thing that we want to see as, as uh, that thing alone, but obviously he's talking about those who followed the Mosaic law and those who did not. Social status, country of origin, these distinctions are not distinctions that God is concerned about. He wants to look at us and he wants to see the image of his son. Those are the ones he's concerned about. Those are the ones he's looking for. Yes, he's concerned about the others who aren't. He wants them to also bear that image. But he's not wrapped up in all the things we seem to spend so much time thinking about, talking about, noticing. No, he's looking at the state of our hearts, the state of our souls. 
as God's elect, we are to put on Christ. These Christ-like qualities. This is our wardrobe. This is the wardrobe that we must select every day. I don't know how you do things in your tent or your camper, but I try to have my clothes for the next morning close at hand so that I can do that quick grab and try to run down to the showers and see if I can beat Calvin into the showers every morning. But there's, there's thought <clears throat> that's required. There's, there's, there's planning that's needed. And there's a decision that we make every day about who we're going to be in the sense of this attire, what we're going to put on. <clears throat> Tender mercies. Kindness. Humbleness of mind. Meekness. Long-suffering. Bearing with one another. Forgiving one another, even as Christ forgave you. And the most important part of our wardrobe, because sometimes we miss things when we, we make that grab, but we can never forget this. Put on love, the perfect tie that binds. <clears throat> we need to let peace be the king of our heart. Let Christ's word dwell in us richly. How's it going to do that? If we don't know it, obviously we have to know it to let it dwell in us. Teaching and admonishing one another with song, with singing, grace in our hearts to the Lord. Again, like Ezra, he set his heart to know the will of the Lord, to practice it, and then to teach it. Do all things in the name of the Lord Jesus with thanksgiving to God. Looking at, uh, we started reading at verse 10 there in Colossians 3, but looking together with verse 10, also verse 9, look at 9 and 10 together. What do we put off and what do we put on? We put off the old man with his deeds. We put on the new man who is renewed in knowledge according to the image of him who created him. In other words, the image of Christ. Looking at verses 12 through 14. As God's elect, God's chosen, holy and beloved people, what are we to put on? Tender mercies, kindness, humbleness of mind, meekness, long-suffering, bearing with one another, forgiving one another as Christ forgave us, and love. Looking at verse 15. What must we allow the peace of God to do? Rule in our hearts. The peace of God is king of our heart. Looking at verse 16, what must we allow the word of Christ to do? Dwell in our hearts richly. We need to make a lot of room in those hearts, don't we? Again at verse 16, 
How are we to teach and admonish one another? What direction do we have here? Examples of doing that in this passage. Psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Singing with grace in our hearts to the Lord. <clears throat> yes, being here is like just a little brief sample of heaven. And the times that I think about that the most is when we're singing together. I often think as we're singing together, and maybe that's what was going on with Justin when that, that song just ended too soon. Can't we just keep on singing and just keep on singing right up into heaven? That's when I feel it the strongest. Looking at verse 17, how are we to do all things, whether in word or in deed? In the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Does that mean that we can do whatever we want as long as we attach his name to it? No. It means it has to conform to his name and his word and his will. All right, any thoughts on that passage anyone has? Or Yes, we have one in the front here, Gene in the front. I couldn't help thinking when we were studying, reading, when you were reading this and studying this. Um, I know we've all heard the comment that, well, you people think you're the only ones that are going to heaven. You're the only ones that think you're right. And I've had some comments directed to me about my attitude um, that um, I don't seem, well, Anyway, I like to think that my attitude is a confidence. I have a confidence in my faith. I have a confidence in my Lord. I have a confidence in my Savior. And maybe I, yes, I like to think I have humility. I have mercy. I have kindness. I am long-suffering. But yet, maybe in front of that is my confidence in, in what I believe. I go out into the world and I maybe project that more than maybe I project my mercy and my humility. But when it comes to people in need, I think my mercy and my humility come out. You know? Maybe the things that... I don't know how I project myself to other people. Maybe, but I've had hurtful things said to me that... Um, about my attitude and how I project myself and, and I've let it go. But I hope that what people see in me is my confidence in what my belief is and that I am, that my tender mercies and my kindness and my humility and my meekness do, is there, I guess is what I'm trying to say. Yeah, yeah. We, we want to take to heart these comments that are directed at us uh, to the degree that we can improve. And, and that's, as iron sharpens iron, that's part of what we should be doing for one another when we're together as Christians. Because uh, we might be blind to some areas that need improvement. But we also bear in mind that the humble life of a Christian is very intimidating to the world. We judge the world every day just by the things that we abstain from, 
by the, the words of truth that we speak, not in anger or harshness or impatience, but just simply stating the truth and living by it. We intimidate the world. And when people are intimidated, they are on the, the defensive and they're going to lash and strike at us. Yeah. You ask uh, if, if this gives us liberty to do whatever we want to. First thing Paul recognized he had to do in running that race was to run it lawfully. Yes. James tells us, look into the perfect law of liberty and continue therein and being not forgetful hearers, but a doer and the work this man shall be blessed in his deeds. Mm -hmm. Yes, there is a law that we live under. It's the law of liberty in Christ Jesus. And when we look and study what we're studying here in Colossians, we're getting the details of what that law actually consists of helps us to understand how we walk in that law of liberty. Yes, it certainly does. Thank you. Uh, Eric Owens, uh, anytime we talk about uh, clothing ourselves with Christ or clothing ourselves with the attributes of Christ, my mind goes back to, uh, to Jacob uh, taking the blessing of Isaac where it was necessary for him to put on Esau's clothes. It was necessary for him to sacrifice two goats, which later on in the old law would become the scapegoat and the sin offering, which again is a shadow of Christ, where uh, you have this imagery mm. of sacrifice. And, and in that, when Jacob does approach Isaac, it isn't because God's blind like Isaac was. He turns a blind eye to our sin because we offer him the obedient sacrifice of Christ. Everything about us at that point then, you know, we, sh we should be seeking to present ourselves to the Father as much like Christ as we possibly can by clothing ourselves with Him in His sacrifice and with the fruits of obedience. Thank you, Brother Eric. Uh, having enjoyed and looked much at the those types in the Old Testament, I've never made those associations particularly that you just made and I was blessed by that. Thank you. It's very good. We're, yeah, we, Bill Wallet, is it? Yeah. Uh, in regards to the, um, the confidence that was mentioned and um, <clears throat> sometimes people will kind of lash out against you, I have found that many times that they're not actually lashing out against you. Mm -hmm. You're provoking a response out of them because yeah. you're wearing the gospel. Right. So it's not necessarily that they're acting out against you. How you live your life, how you present yourself, is causing a reaction in them. Yes. And they can either choose to rebel against it, in which case they lash out against you, or they can accept it. And I've started to see this more and more in my own parents. They're, they are of, of a different faith. And it seems now almost any time the man and I get together with them, the conversation will turn to religion. Mm -hmm. And eventually some feathers get ruffled one way or the other. Yeah. So just because they're lashing out at you may not mean they're lashing out at you personally, but yet the idea that you have convicted them without maybe necessarily saying or doing anything to do so. Yes, very good. Thank you. We're, that's what Paul was speaking of when he said that we've been made a spectacle. And um, I've, I've always tried to keep in mind something that I remember Tom 
Woody saying to me early on, emphasize, let, let their struggle be with the Word of God, not with you. Now, we're, we're the bearers of this message, and we're the target when, they, when their feathers get ruffled. You know, so we have to be ready for that. But let's make sure that it's not about, about us. Let's get the word out and let them have the struggle with that. Yeah. Do we have some more over here? Yeah, Fred. Uh, yes, Steve, toward the idea of uh, putting on this uh, new self. Mm-hmm. Uh, and as you mentioned, this is totally about hypocrisy within our own selves. Uh, the idea of uh, the Greek hypocrite, the actor that would mm-hmm. wear a mask. Right. Uh, this is the difference between the facade, the mask, and who we really are. Right. Uh, this has to be who we are, not yes. the facade. Amen. Bill Fleener? When, when I was in the military, <clears throat> I went overseas, and what the people I was with said, well, you're going to be going to town, you're going to be meeting up with women and things. Mm-hmm. In a short period of time, they seen that I was not. And they went to respect you before that. And I, I, by living it, mm-hmm. without living it, they would have not known. Yeah. Yeah, certain circumstances, the military being uh, one, there's certainly a lot of um, pressure to conform to some ungodly things. Yeah. Do we have any others? Um, I forgot to bring my phone clock up here so we got 12 minutes well <clears throat> okay I think Romans 14 and 15 are going to have to give a, get a pass as well I would like to oh okay thank you I did want to give some attention to uh, to first Peter chapter 2. And so I'll just I'll just give an overview here and and a, a kind of a summary. Objectives in studying this chapter: number one, to note what is necessary in order to grow spiritually; number two, to reflect upon our privilege and duties as God's special people, living as sojourners and pilgrims in a world not our home; number three. To review our duty to submit to governmental authorities and to make application of the instructions to slaves in our lives as employees. Having described how they were born again by the incorruptible word of God, Peter admonishes his readers to put aside sinful attitudes and to grow spiritually with an infant-like longing for the word, verses 1 through 3. He then depicts Jesus as a living stone and Christians as living stones. The latter are being built up as a spiritual house and holy priesthood in order to offer spiritual sacrifices through Christ, as foretold in the scriptures. Jesus is the chief cornerstone that is precious to those who believe, while a stone of stumbling to those who are disobedient. Christians are called to proclaim the praises of God as they are now a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people who have now obtained mercy, 4 through 10. As the people of God, Christians are sojourners and pilgrims in this world. Their duties as such involve abstaining 
from fleshly lusts and keeping their conduct honorable among the Gentile nations through good works as designed to glorify God. They are to honor and to submit to governmental authorities and honor all people while the loving the brethren and fearing their God, 11 through 17. Christian slaves are told to submit to their masters even when they are harsh and cause them to suffer grief wrongly. Peter reveals that such submission is commendable before God and follows the example of Jesus with his own sufferings who, which delivered us from sin, 18 through 25. So again, we have a call to spiritual growth in verses 1 through 3. What to lay aside in verse 1? All malice, all deceit, hypocrisy, envy, all evil speaking. What to desire, verses 2 and 3? The pure milk of the word as newborn babes, that you may grow thereby, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is gracious. Our privilege in Christ, verses 4 through 10. In 4 through 8, as living stones, coming to Christ as a living stone who was rejected by man, who is chosen by God and precious. We as living stones are built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Christ is the precious cornerstone, as foretold in Isaiah 28:16. God would lay in Zion a chief cornerstone, elect, precious. He who believes on him will by no means be put to shame. Precious to those who believe, as foretold in Psalm 118:22 and Isaiah 8:14. A stone that was rejected by the builders, that is, the leaders of Israel, which has become the chief cornerstone, a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense to those who are disobedient. As people of God, 9 and 10, they are new. A chosen generation. A royal priesthood. A holy nation. His own special people. Now they are to proclaim the praises of God who called them out of darkness into His marvelous light. The people of God who once were not the people of God, drawing upon those words in the book of Hosea, who had not obtained mercy, but now have obtained mercy. Our duties in Christ, verses 11 through 25, as sojourners, 11 and 12, to abstain from fleshly lusts which war against the soul, to have conduct honorable among the Gentiles, that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may glorify God in the day of visitation because of your good works that they observe. As citizens, verses 13 through 17, submit yourselves to every ordinance of man for the Lord's sake, to the king as supreme, to governors as those sent by the king for the punishment of evildoers, for the praise of those who do good, for this is the will of God as bondservants of God, that by doing good you may put to silence the ignorance of foolish men, as free, yet not using your liberty as a cloak for vice. Therefore, honor all, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the king. As servants or employees, in verse 18 to 25, be submissive to your masters with all fear, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the harsh, for this is commendable before God. If because of conscience before God one endures grief, suffering wrongfully, what credit is there when beaten for your faults if you take it 
patiently. If when you do good and suffer, yet take it patiently, that is commendable. For we are called to follow in the steps of Jesus, our example, who committed no sin, nor was deceit found in his mouth. Isaiah 53, 9. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten. He committed himself to him who judges righteously, who bore our sins in his own body on that tree, that we, having died to sins, might live for righteousness, by whose stripes you were healed. You were like sheep going astray, but have now returned to the shepherd and the overseer of your souls. <clears throat> going to take just a few more minutes as we close to, to read this as our summary for our thoughts for this session. And it does again pertain and focus in particular upon 1 Peter chapter 2, especially verses 11 and 12. <clears throat> Considering God's people under man's government. If you didn't read my article in the November Gospel message, well, I'm going to read it to you now. Throughout the book of 1 Peter, the apostle consistently refers to the faithful as pilgrims and sojourners. Notice the thought in chapter 2, verses 11 and 12, where Peter urges his readers to a righteous life in a hostile world. The first thing that Peter urges us to do is to abstain from fleshly lusts, verse 11. In order to have an impact for God on this world, Christians have to be disciplined in an inward and private way by not being controlled by the desires of the flesh. Consider Galatians 5, 19 through 21, where fleshly lusts, or as the ESV puts it, the passions of the flesh, include much more than sexual temptations only, and are said to be things which war against the soul. This word war is taken from a Greek verb which means to carry on a military campaign. Fleshly lusts then are personified as if they were an army of rebels or guerrillas who incessantly search out and try to destroy the Christian's joy, peace, and usefulness. 1 Peter 4 and 2. So in the midst of all this danger, all of this strife, Peter then tells us that we must keep our conduct Honorable. The Greek word for honorable here is rich in meaning and implies the purest, highest, noblest kind of goodness. It means lovely, winsome, gracious. No matter where we might live, a Christian having been disciplined in the inward and private side must outwardly live among the non-Christians in a way that reflects that inward discipline so that when they speak against you as evildoers, but why would they call me an evildoer? You ask. Well, consider how first and second century society spoke of the early Christians. The early Christians were accused of such things as terrorism, atheism, cannibalism, and immorality. They were called terrorists due to Rome's burning. Emperor Nero did it, of course, probably driven by his mad lust to build more and new monuments to himself, and so probably intentionally. But in the process, he totally devastated Rome. Their culture went down with the city. All religious elements of their life were destroyed. Temples, shrines, and even household idols were burned up. A catastrophe severely imply, implying that their deities were powerless to stop the conflagration and were, in fact, victims of it. 
The Roman people were now homeless and helpless. Many had been killed in the blaze. Their very bitter resentment was so strong that Nero soon realized that he must redirect the, the hostilities and he needed a scapegoat. He found a perfect one, almost gift-wrapped and delivered. He was known, it was, excuse me, he blamed the Christians and thus the charge atheist was leveled at them. Atheism because it was known that the worship of idols or the emperor as God was not things practiced by the Christians. Regarding cannibalism, this accusation was the result of ill-informed rumors about the Lord's Supper. And there was as well the accusation of immorality because of their love for one another. Besides these, the Christians were also blamed for damaging trade and social progress and for leading slaves into insurrection. For these areas, consider Acts 16, 18 through 21, 19, verse 19, and also 24 through 27. What punishments may be in store for us who refuse to bow down to the green god of environmentalism? What about the sins of Sodom and Gomorrah? When I see great numbers of people coming to their feet with thunderous applause when a speaker says that a mother has the right to kill her child or we should be able to marry someone the same gender and receive our government's blessing for it, for me, all this serves to intensify the strength of the word, such as make every effort to live at peace with all men and to be holy. Without holiness, no one will see the Lord. Hebrews 12:14. Remember our conduct, brethren. The day of visitation is coming. In light of all this, what is our responsibility to those governments of men under which we live? Peter addresses this question specifically in verses 13 through 17. The pilgrim's responsibility in one word, submit. Verses 13 and 14, we are to submit to every ordinance of man. The word submit means to be subject to, signifying to place oneself under subjection, render, render oneself subordinate. In Peter's context, context here, it means to arrange in military order under the commander. As citizens in the world and under civil law and authority, God's people are to live in a humble, submissive way in the midst of even the most hostile, godless, slandering society. But submission is not always an easy thing to do. What reasons does Peter give that might motivate us to submit to our government as we should? Peter gives us two very good reasons. 1 Peter 2, 15 through 17. First and foremost, this is the will of God. That ought to suffice for all true Christians of God. But Peter does explain why this is the Lord's will, that we put to silence the ignorance of foolish men. So here it is, brethren, the purpose for submission to authority. In order that one should avoid condemnation and win commendation that shuts the mouths of those who are obstinately set against the faith. This principle is not without exception. It is not whenever government is oppressive. The government under which Peter lived was totalitarian. Nero, an evil despotic ruler, was emperor. Under his reign, Christians suffered greatly. What then is the only exception? The answer is we must obey God rather than man. Daniel in the lion's den, the three Hebrew children in the fiery furnace, baby Moses in the floating basket, and many other biblical examples of God's people disobeying the laws of men. And what did these people do on an average day? They lived their lives normally and peaceably. It is only when the government tries to force us to disobey God that we must then disobey God the government. Thank you.
Only three minutes over. You have your break. 